thank you for uh, this afternoon. Thank you once again for gathering your children to learn from you. We continually ask for your anointing to each of us as we receive your uh, message. We pray for your special anointing to our uh, rabbi, Pastor Sam. Would you allow your spirit to descend upon us? And uh, we open our hearts, Lord. We open our minds. We surrender to you this afternoon. We surrender to our whole being. Teach us, mold us, guide us, be with us, Lord, that we may uh, continually learn from you and give you glory and serve you even more effectively as we learn about the scriptures. Lord, we give you praise. We honor you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Pastor Sam, Leia will be assisting you. And uh, Raquel, uh, I'll be, I'll be okay. uh, leaving uh, at around 4 p.m. for a meeting as well. But you are in good hands. <laughs> All right, go ahead, sir. The floor is yours. Today, let's pay attention to the Gospels of the New Testament. The four Gospels, they stand at the beginning of the New Testament because the stories of the Gospels concern with the ministry, the teaching, death, resurrection of Jesus. And this is the foundation of our Christian faith. If we were to deal with the New Testament, from a chronological point of view, then the Gospels would follow the Epistles. Because the Epistles were written a little before the Gospels were written. So, in the Gospels, we learn a lot about Jesus. And it's from Jesus that everything starts. The word Gospel, or euangelion, it does not refer to a book but it refers to good news. And this is a concept that was already common in the Roman Empire. It's not something that the evangelists invented or the church invented, but this was something that was prevailing in society in Rome. It was used in connection with the imperial cult. Whenever there was a Benefaction, when the emperor made a proclamation of good news or an heir was born to the emperor, uh, next emperor sort of. It started around the reign of Augustus and this was good news. Word went all over the kingdom saying, a prince has been born, euangelion. It's good news, meaning our kingdom and our future are not at risk. If this king should die, a new king has already been born, so it's good news. Occasionally, it was also good news about war. So if your name goes fight with another nation and goes to fight far away from your home country or your own borders, runners, messengers, would come back and forth from the battlefield to the home country bringing news. We are winning. We are losing. We have won. We have lost. The enemy has been defeated or our armies have been 
destroyed, so on and so forth. So when runners came back, they would announce that it was good news so that people would not panic that their children have passed away and their young men have died. So the idea of euangelion or gospel was already present in the Roman Empire. It was not something that the church invented. And as such, they just make use of it. They just make use of this because it's Sorry, suddenly my screen disappeared. Um, so that they could take advantage of this. So let's start off with the Gospel of Mark. Why the Gospel of Mark? For the longest time, you know, New Testament, Matthew first. For the longest time, including the time of Augustine the Great, a great uh, figure in church history, everyone thought that Matthew was written first. It's only later that the priority of Mark was established. So this is what we will accomplish today. Today we will look at the four Gospels and hopefully the book of Acts. There are other things that I would like to inform you and keep you informed with regard to the criticism of the New Testament, form and redaction and also about certain other secondary issues. But today, let's jump right in to the Gospel of Mark. The ancient church, the early church, did not pay much attention to the Gospel of Mark because it was shorter. They preferred the Gospel of Matthew because it was more detailed. And as such, in the early church, the Gospel of Mark was not as popular as Matthew. And when Luke showed up, not as popular as Matthew and Luke. And when John showed up, not as popular as Matthew, Luke, and John. It's the shortest and the simplest of the four Gospels. Many early church scholars quote from it. What do we know now? We don't think it's an abbreviated or abridged form of the gospel, but a complete work in itself. The early church thought Mark submitted a small review of Matthew's gospel, a synopsis, if you will. You take Matthew's gospel and you highlight the most important things, and that's the gospel of Mark. Turns out that's not really true. The gospel of Mark is a complete story of Jesus in its own right. Do we know who wrote these Gospels? The Gospel writers, humble people as they were, it was not important to them that they put their name on what they were writing. They were more interested in revealing Jesus than making a name for themselves. And as such, you will not see an autobiographical statement there is something close to an autobiographical statement in the Gospel of Luke, but it's only to the person to whom the Gospel other than an exhaustive statement about the one who wrote it. How do we know that these Gospels 
were written by the people that we now understand wrote them. How do we know Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark? How do we know Matthew, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and John? So we look at it from two points of view. External evidence, meaning what other people have said about the Gospels, and internal evidence, what clues do we find within the gospel content itself that we can say, oh, this is from Luke, and this is from Mark, and this is from Matthew, and this is from John. So there was a bishop of Hierapolis. His name was Papias. He's very important to gospel research because he quotes and mentions the gospels. We need proof outside the New Testament that these were indeed authentic documents. So he's someone that we depend on to a certain extent for external evidence. Papias says John Mark was an interpreter or a travel companion of the disciple Peter. And as Peter preached and as Peter told stories, I witnessed stories of Jesus' life, teaching, ministry, parables, miracles, so on and so forth. As he would teach this, John Mark would write them down. And because in preaching we don't always go into great detail, especially if it's in a rush, the structure to Mark reveals an urgency, a sense of urgency. What do we know about the Gospel of Mark from the external evidence? One, Mark was not a personal follower of Jesus. Some people suggest that he may have known Jesus, but there is no indication he was a disciple of Jesus. Two, Mark was a companion of the disciple preacher, uh, Peter, and wrote down his preaching. Three, he listed down whatever he heard from Peter accurately. Unfortunately, he did not list them in order. That's why if you study the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, things are a little bit out of order. In Matthew, there is one order. In Mark, there is another order. And in Luke, there is a completely different order. Because when Mark was writing down Peter's preaching, he faithfully listed down everything Peter preached, but he did not arrange it in a chronologically ordered setting. So Mark was not just a follower, a companion, of Peter, he occasionally was an interpreter too. What do we mean by interpreter? Does it mean he took Peter's words and twisted them and added his own meaning? No. It means he was more or less someone who faithfully preserved Peter's preaching. I would like to think of Mark more as a translator. Remember, the Jews spoke Aramaic. Mark was writing in Greek, and as such, occasionally he took the Aramaisms of Peter and added a Greek flavor to it as the Holy Spirit permitted him. Many people believe the, uh, the disciple Peter did not speak much Greek. 
And because of that, Mark had to take what was preached in Aramaic and translate it into Greek. Some people argue that Peter came from a part of Galilee where people spoke more than one language, and as such, he may not have been fluent in Greek, but there's a possibility he may have spoken it, even a broken version. We're not entirely sure because we weren't there. So, other scholars in the early church, other fathers in the early church, for example, Irenaeus, also speaks about the Gospel of Mark. And if you follow early church history, you will come across a person called Clement of Alexandria. He also mentions the Gospel of Mark. So we have three very popular, very famous, very respected early church authorities that mention the Gospel of Mark. Papias, Irenaeus, and Clement. So we have external evidence. We know that there was such a thing as the Gospel of Mark as early as the first century. How about internal evidence? What does the Gospel itself tell us about Mark? Tell us about the person, about the manner of writing, so on and so forth. So there is no explicit mention about the author. Nowhere does Mark say, I, Mark, am writing this gospel. However, the internal evidence does not contradict external evidence. Nowhere do we find also where it says this gospel is not written by Mark. The internal evidence shows that the gospel was indeed written out of speaking, out of preaching. Um, what else do we know about the gospel of Mark? Anything that would make Peter look great is not mentioned in the gospel of Mark, which makes sense to me because if I am Peter and I am preaching, I would not want to sound my own horn or beat my own drum. I would not promote myself. I would practice humility. So since Mark is writing down Peter's preaching, we notice that anything that makes Peter look great is not mentioned. For instance, Peter walking on water, mentioned in Matthew chapter 14, and not mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Matthew, the keys of the kingdom are entrusted to Peter. That's why we call him San Pedro, the holder of the keys. In the Catholic Church, that's the prevailing thought. In Matthew chapter 16, the keys of the kingdom are entrusted to Peter, but in Mark, nothing's mentioned. So, What else? Anything that makes Peter look bad, the Gospel of Mark elaborates on. Who can put himself down? Peter. 
If other people put down Peter, that's kind of bad. But Peter himself can say, you know, I messed up. And in my walk with the Lord, I did this, I did that, so on and so forth. Now, when you have time, I want you to read Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 43. It's Peter's sermon. When you read Acts 10, 34 to 43, you will notice the same flavor, the same tone is also present in the Gospel of Mark. That's one of the ways we know that this, this Gospel is written down from Peter's preaching. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. This Mark was known as John Mark. Who is this man? He was the son of a widow named Mary, who lived in Jerusalem and whose house served as a house church, a location for fellowship. Apparently, the disciple Peter would frequent that home because it was a home that extended kindness and hospitality for everyone. Acts chapter 12, verse 14 Remember, there's a little girl who recognizes Peter's voice. That's the house. Why would the little girl recognize Peter's voice? He goes there a lot with the other disciples. So that's where Mark's home was. At least that's the general understanding among scholars. So Mark, from a very young age, was familiar with the disciple Peter and with his preaching. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, the disciple Peter refers to John Mark as my son, which is to say he's not Peter's biological son, but spiritual son, just as the Apostle Paul would speak about Timothy and Titus as his children in the faith. So 1 Peter 5, 13 establishes that Indeed, the gospel writer, John Mark, and Peter were not just acquaintances. They had a close bond, which submits a better argument that the apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, preached the gospel and Mark wrote it down. Mark is not just the spiritual son of Peter, 1 Peter 5.13. He was also the cousin of Barnabas. Remember Barnabas? This was the reason Barnabas and Paul went separate ways because Paul was not very happy with John Mark. Apparently, in the middle of a missionary journey, John Mark decided to abandon the trip and go home. And Paul did not like that. And when Barnabas insisted on bringing his cousin, Paul decided to take Silas and travel on his own and Barnabas took John Mark and traveled together. Where do we see this? Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. That's where we know that Barnabas and Mark, John Mark, are related. When Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch in Syria from Jerusalem, they took John Mark with them. Acts 12, verse 25. So you can see there are many biblical references 
and many biblical proofs as to the identity of John Mark. We know he's a cousin of Barnabas. We know he's a spiritual son of the disciple Peter. We know that his home was a house church, and we know that his home extended hospitality to the early church leaders. So there is more than definite proof that Peter preached, John Mark listened, and collected all the sermons and put them together. When Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey, this is Acts chapter 13. You can read about this in verse 5. Now, when they went on their first missionary journey, initially John Mark was part of that trip. Unfortunately, when we get to verse 13 of chapter 13, for whatever reason, John Mark left. When they reached Perga, John Mark decided to go back. Maybe the food was not great. Maybe the weather was not great. Or maybe he had differences of opinion with someone else. We do not know. All we know is when they got to Perga, chapter 13, verse 13, John Mark decided to leave. And this created disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. And by the time of the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas went separate ways. So Barnabas and, and Mark went to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas went to Syria and Cilicia. Cecilia. Yeah. Uh, you can read this in Acts chapter 15. We don't know anything else until Paul is imprisoned in Rome. Nothing else is spoken. But while he was in prison in Rome, Paul concludes in his letter to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 10, greetings from John Mark. He also mentions him in Philemon, verse 24. So apparently they patched things together and they were once again ministering together because in Philemon, Paul mentions John Mark as a fellow worker. That means initially Paul was not satisfied with John Mark's behavior, but eventually John Mark was reconciled to the great apostle. When Paul left Rome after his release, Mark apparently, John Mark, apparently remained in Rome. And after Peter came to Rome, Mark joined him. From a chronological standpoint, the last time John Mark, the author of the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, is mentioned is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. By that time, John Mark has become a valued servant to Paul. During the time of Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. This is when Paul tells Timothy, can you please come? Can you please bring a thick coat? Can you please bring my parchments? Do your best to come before winter. Because after that, Paul is executed. So during the last season of the Apostle Paul's life, when he speaks about John Mark, he calls him a valued servant. That means Mark was able to shape up. Not only that, he became a very important person. To whom is the Gospel of Mark written? Now that we know who wrote it, John Mark, 
son of a widow whose name was Mary, lived in Rome in a home, and his house was a house church, cousin to Barnabas, spiritual son to Peter, and valued servant to Paul, who, to whom was the Gospel of Mark written? Who was the target audience? Was it a small community? Was it a large community? Was it a house church? Was it a specific city? Was he writing to Gentile Christians? Was he writing to Roman Christians? So let's talk about that for a few minutes. To whom was he writing? The content of the gospel, now that we've established John Mark wrote the gospel, the content of the gospel seems to be directed to Roman readers readers in the city of Rome. And as such, you could say the target audience is predominantly Gentile. It does not mean there were no Jewish people in the audience. It just means the majority of the community that received the Gospel of Mark were, in fact, Gentile, non-Jewish Christians. How do we know this? Am I just making this up? No, we have internal evidences. How do we know this? Number one, Mark does not mention the law of Moses. What's the point? The Romans did not know about it. Jewish people would understand. Pagans would not. Two, not much is mentioned about the fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew talks about so that it might be fulfilled as what was written by the prophet or spoken by the prophet so and so mark does not do that because gentiles are not interested in how jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy so he does not mention the law of moses he does not mention the fulfillment of prophecy three mark explains jewish customs and terms if he was writing to jews why would he explain their own customs to them? If a Pinoy was writing to other Pinoys, he or she would not explain Pinoy culture to other Pinoys. But if a Filipino was writing to Indians or Chinese or Europeans, you would explain Filipino culture because you would not know whether your target audience would understand Manopo and Bayani and and so on and so forth. So the very fact that Mark explains Jewish customs, and you can read this in chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, in chapter 12, verse 42, and chapter 14, verse 12. Mark explains these customs because his target audience is not Jewish. Therefore, he feels compelled to explain these terms. Four, Mark translates Aramaic words. If you're writing to Jews, why would you translate their own language? Would you translate Tagalog if you're addressing a Pinoy audience? No. But if there are foreigners there, you would go to great lengths to explain what you have said. So we know Mark was not writing to a Jewish audience because he does not mention the law. He does not talk about the fulfillment of prophecy. He explains Jewish customs and traditions. 
and Jewish terminology, and he translates Aramaic words and sentences whenever they're introduced. For example, chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 5, verse 41, chapter 7, verse 11, so on and so forth. Now, another clue Mark mentions about the location of the Mount of Olives. If you are writing to a Jewish audience living in Judea, why would you need to explain where the Mount of Olives was? Will you explain to Filipinos where certain Filipino cities are? Would you explain if Visayas in the, is in the north or if Mindanao is in the south? No, you would not. Because everybody knows where Luzon is and where Visayas are and where Mindanao is. But to an outsider, you may explain Luzon is the northernmost island, Mindanao is the southernmost island, and Visayas is right in the middle. So the very fact that Mark explains where the Mount of Olives was in geographical relationship to Jerusalem and the temple, that gives us proof it is not meant for Jewish readers. So he's writing to a Gentile audience. And finally, in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, there was a certain man in the church in Rome. His name was Rufus. You can read about it. Romans 16, 13. Mentions a certain man whose name was Rufus. Mark, in chapter 15, Verse 21 identifies Simon of Cyrene as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he say that? Because he wants the audience in Rome to understand the Simon he's talking about is the dad of those two boys that are sitting in church listening to the gospel. So we know it's written by John Mark. We know it is written to a non-Jewish, a predominantly non-Jewish audience because of what we have just discussed. Now, where was it written? We know to whom was it written, but where was it written? And more importantly, when was it written? The early church believed that Mark was written in Rome, as in written while he was in the city of Rome. How do we know this? Because Mark was a travel companion of Peter, and Peter was in Rome for a long time, and 1 Peter 5.13 establishes that they were together, and as such, they were together. Oh, by the way, Babylon is a code name for Rome in the New Testament, at least in the gospel and certain epistolary literature. So. Um, the only disagreement for those of you that are interested in scholarly issues, everyone seems to agree that Mark was written from Rome, but the only early church authority, a popular, popular figure, Chrysostom, who lived from about 347 to 407 AD. He was the only one who associated Mark 
with Egypt, with the city of Alexandria, where there was a large community of Jewish people. So you have two choices. You can either agree with the majority and say Mark was written from Rome, or you can choose the minority and say Mark was written from Egypt, from the city of Alexandria. If you would ask me, I lean more towards Rome. It seems highly improbable that Mark could have been written from Alexandria. Improbable, but not impossible. When was Mark written? The traditional testimony that everyone talks about, about the Gospel of Mark, it, it's not very clear. So we're not entirely sure when the Gospel was written. But there are some pointers, evidences, that we can look at and say, maybe it was written from approximately around this time. Not exact year and month and date, but approximately this time. So, Peter did not go to Rome until 63 AD. That much we know. And the earliest date for Peter's martyrdom, according to church history, is 64 AD. So, if Peter preached, and Mark wrote it down, and Mark was living in Rome, and Peter preached in Rome, and Peter went to Rome in AD 63, but he also died in AD 64, then we cannot come up with a date earlier than 63 and later than 64, 65. So there is a possibility, I might be wrong, I have been wrong before, there's a possibility the Gospel of Mark could have been written in the early to mid 60s AD. That doesn't mean it was not written earlier, and that does not mean it could not have been written later. Unfortunately, the evidences are not clear. And the most popular time frame is from 65 to 68. What's the purpose of the gospel? Everyone has a purpose. What's the purpose of the gospel of Mark? There is no explicit statement. Mark does not say, I'm writing this to you because one, two, three. No, he does not say that. So we have to once again evaluate the content to determine the intent. We have to look at the setting and we have to look at the content to be able to decide why he wrote the gospel. So what are some of the qualities of the gospel? One, the gospel of Mark is short, brevity. Two, it's very vivid. Details that nobody else gives, even though the Gospel of Mark is a small document, Mark gives that. Realism. Mark is not an idealist. He explains things as they are. So, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels. It does not include any nativity stories or genealogy stories of Jesus. And almost all the long teachings of Jesus are omitted, except for two. 
So Mark wanted to write a shorter version of the gospel. Two, the gospel of Mark is all about action. Jesus moves fast in the gospel of Mark. As I mentioned before, the word youthless immediately is found more in the gospel of Mark than all the other three gospels. And as such, Jesus is always busy in the gospel of Mark. He's busy with the task of his father's kingdom. So only Mark tells us that Jesus sometimes was too busy to eat. Matthew chapter, uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, and Mark chapter 6. Jesus was in such a big rush that he occasionally forgot to eat. At least that's what Mark tells us. Mark tells us so many things that have great detail. For instance, he sometimes uses two expressions when one would be enough. Mark also gives us a very human perspective into Jesus. How do we know this? Mark talks about Jesus being filled with compassion. Mark tells us that Jesus used to sigh. I thought that was a human being thing. <gasps> Apparently, Jesus would do this too. Um, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus sighs. And hungry and weary. Jesus was in distress and sorrow. Jesus observed everything carefully. Chapter 3, verse 5, verse 34, and chapter 5, verse 32. Mark talks about Jesus physically touching people. Mark tells us about Jesus being interested in little children. And Mark also tells us that Jesus was often displeased and he was angry. Mark wants us to know that Jesus was a very human person. He was divine, but there was a human side to him. Mark also tells us what kind of reactions the people had to Jesus. One, he talks about how people were amazed at Jesus Christ. He also talks about how Jesus was criticized by the people. He talks about fear, astonishment, and ultimately, hatred. The Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is our Savior, but the disciples, Mark does not paint them in a good light. The disciples are ordinary people in the Gospel of Mark. They are dull. They often criticize Jesus. and so on and so forth. Only Mark records for us 
that Jesus was known in Nazareth as the carpenter. Chapter 6, verse 3. Now, from a theological standpoint, standpoint, Mark only quotes the Old Testament once. In chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But Mark does tell us that Jesus quoted the Old Testament often. There are many other uh, examples, but we can uh, dispense with that. We will study the theology of Mark perhaps another time, but for now, I'd like to get to Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew provides the best transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. If you are reading Malachi and you jump right in to the New Testament, you would not be disoriented. Why? Matthew provides excellent transition from the New Testament to the Old Testament. Technically, the Gospel of Matthew is an anonymous document. But the early church had no problems ascribing this Gospel to Matthew. Um, External evidences. Remember we were talking about Papias, Irenaeus, and Clement of Alexandria as providing authentication for the Gospel of Mark. Well, when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew, we also have early church witnesses, starting with, once again, Papias, Bishop of Hierapolis. Next, Irenaeus. Also somebody we mentioned when we studied Mark. And finally, origin. Strange man. You can study about him and you'll be shocked what he did to himself because he was facing temptation. So, Papias, Irenaeus, and Clement testify to the authenticity of Mark, Papias, Irenaeus, and Origen testify to the authenticity of Matthew. How do we know Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Only in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is called a publican, meaning tax collector. The, the Gospel of Matthew also gives us proof that the Gospel was written by somebody who was bilingual. As a tax collector, Matthew had to be trilingual or at least bilingual because you're working for Rome, taxing the Jews, and, and other foreigners. So you have to speak Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire. 
you have to speak Greek in order to get across to everybody else. And you also needed a little bit of Aramaic to communicate with the people. So Matthew had working knowledge of Latin, Greek, and Aramaic. Maybe not Latin, but at least Greek and Aramaic. The argument is Matthew would interview the people who came to pay tax in Aramaic and make his reports to Rome in Greek or Latin. Some of the terminologies that Matthew uses are words borrowed from the tax profession, from the tax collector's community. How do we know this? Only the first gospel uses the Greek word for tribute, nomisma. Mark, on the other hand, uses the common term denarius. The writer of the Gospel of Matthew was the only one who uses the correct term, nomisma, or tribute. What else do we know? Who are the audience? If Mark was written to Gentile Christians living in Rome, who did Matthew write his gospel to? Matthew wrote his gospel for Jewish people currently living in Palestine. And perhaps by exchange to other communities nearby. What's the purpose of the gospel? Because it's written to the Jews, the purpose is to explain a few things to the Jewish people. How do we know this? By some of the words that Matthew repeats. For instance, the kingdom of God is a phrase repeated nearly 35 times in the New Testament. Jesus is called the son of David nine times. Lots of quotes from the prophets and allusions to prophecies being fulfilled. The central argument of the book is Jesus is the anticipated Messiah, the one we're all waiting for. A mention of the crown of glory is also in the gospel, because Matthew wants to exalt the name of God. Jerusalem is called the city of the great king. So on and so forth. Um, how do we know, while the gospel was written to the Jewish people, it did not exclude Gentiles? So the argument, at least my argument, is Matthew was not just written for the Jews. It was also written for everyone. Gentile, pagan, whatever you want to call it. But while the gospel is written to all people everywhere, Matthew did not fail to recognize Jewish privilege. Chapter 10. 
But he also warns the Jews that they'll be shut out of the kingdom of God because of their unbelief and disappointment. Matthew mentions two non-Jewish women in Jesus' genealogy. We'll get to that later. If you read Jesus' genealogy, there are four women in it. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. So, Mark is also addressing Gentile Christians. Because in chapter 8, verses 7 and 12, Matthew says that the Jews will be shut out of God's kingdom if they don't obey the Lord. The wise men are only mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. As you read the Gospel of Matthew, you understand this book is a teaching book. It has a didactic purpose. And then it contains the largest block of Jesus' teaching. Chapters 5 through 7. How do we know this? 5, Jesus goes up the mountain. And then 7, Jesus comes down a mountain. That means that entire teaching happened on a mountain top. Matthew also says, the Jewish people will be delivered in him. Him not meaning Matthew. Him meaning the Lord. But... It took a while. Let's stop here for a minute. Before we go to Luke and John and before we take our break, do you have any questions? Pastor Sam, I have a question. Yes. Yes. What, what's the main significance of knowing when these Gospels were actually written? That's a very good question. The reason we try to look for dating is because the earlier the documents are dated, the more authentic the story, just like in our case. If I watch a movie yesterday and you ask me the story today, I'll be able to repeat what I saw in the movie with greater clarity and accuracy today than 10 years from now. And as such, liberal scholars try to show that the Gospels were written much, much later. Part of the reason liberal scholarship dates the Gospels in the second century or the third century is because they want to show that the early church had a secret agenda. They invented the resurrection. They invented Jesus being raised back to life. They invented some of the great stories of the Gospels because they want these stories, these mythical elements, to help move the church into growth. That's why you have the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith argument. 
there is a group of scholars called the Jesus Seminar and other scholars in the past that questioned mythical, mythological elements in the gospel that argue that the Jesus, the son of Joseph and Mary, was not the son of God. He was just a great man. The Jesus of history is real, but the Christ of faith, the one who raised the dead and gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and speech to the mute, so on and so forth. The Christ of faith is a complete fabrication by the early church. So their argument is we must separate the Christ of faith from the Jesus of history. He is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is one real and one fictitious element put together to make the church great. For conservative scholars like us, we try to trace the earliest origins of the gospel narrative because the earlier the gospel was written, the more accurate the story. There are no fallacies, there are no false information. But if you date the gospels to let's say 150 or 200, all the eyewitnesses are already dead. So now you can dispute the authenticity of the story. So it's important for us, while it is not important for preaching and small groups and discipleship, it's important for you, teachers and pastors, to understand when a gospel was written because you yourself would have firm conviction that these stories were written either by eyewitnesses, Matthew and John, or by disciples of eyewitnesses, Mark and Luke. That's why dating is important. The earlier the date, the more accurate the information. The later the date, the more corrupt the story could be. Does that answer your question? Yes, Pastor Sam, thank you. Okay, all right, you're welcome. Any other questions? Yes, Paul. Uh, you said uh, you said earlier that some book in the New Testament had, had addressed that uh, that it has a uh, intention why they why they wrote that book. For example, uh, the book of Mark, and later on you said that Matthew, uh, if I'm not mistaken. You said that Matthew is written just to just to tell that God is a human, that God is a human being, that God is can feel, uh, that God is not uh, eating eating on time, God is uh, being tired. Yes. So the the book of Matthew is to is to um to what do you call this? The book of Matthew is to uh, to just tell how Jesus is human being. Am I right? Okay. 
maybe I was not very clear. I don't think the Gospel of Matthew is trying to show that Jesus was more human and less, less divine. All the Gospels try to establish two clear things. Jesus is divine. Jesus is human. But they also want to establish that Jesus was equally human and equally divine. He was not 50% human and 50% divine. Then he's hybrid. He's not 75% human and 25% divine. That means he is a man of God. He's not 75% God and 25% human. Then he's like the mythical characters, the demigods of ancient Greece. What the Gospels want to establish is Jesus is 100% human and 100% divine. In him, both natures found completion. But they also wanted the people to know that Jesus was not someone who did not experience what we experience as human beings. In order to show that Jesus understands what we go through. So when Lazarus died, Jesus weeps. When Jesus is hungry, he looks for food. And when he cannot find any figs on the tree, he speaks harshly to it. So on and so forth. So the gospel writers want us to understand that while Jesus' divinity is established, but Jesus can also relate to you and I with simple things like sleep and hunger and rest and sadness. But I don't think Matthew was trying to go extra lengths to show that Jesus was a lot more human and a lot less divine. Maybe that I did not make clear, and I'm sorry for that. Does this answer your question? Thank you. The difference between Matthew and Mark. First, length. Matthew is long. Mark is short. Second, purpose. Matthew was written to a community that was multicultural. Mark was written to a community that was predominantly Gentile. And as such, Mark does not feel the need to show the prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus, while Matthew feels the need to show that the prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled in Jesus. But both of them are trying to show that Jesus is the Son of God and our Messiah. It's just that the finer details, they're different. And Mark was written down not as a discipleship manual, but Matthew was written with small groups, and new believers in mind. And as such, historically, the Gospel of Matthew was used as a, for catechism, for teaching and training people in the early church, whereas the Gospel of Mark was not used for that purpose. Um, why is Matthew called Levi? That's his Hebrew name. Levi, son of Alphaeus. Matthew is probably was his popular name. Like, for example, when Koreans come to the Philippines, their, their Korean name is Dongbukso or something. But some of them have really complicated names. 
And it's very difficult for people to say their names. So they give themselves English names. So sometimes when you run into Koreans, they'll say, hi, my name is, uh, let's say, David. You're like, really? No, no, that's not my, that's my English name. I met a lot of Korean people and uh, Chinese people that give you their English version of the name. So that was Matthew's professional name, Matthew, as a tax collector. But maybe his Jewish brethren, they knew him by um, his Jewish name. All right. It's 4.01. Please take a 10-minute break. Come back by 4.10. Or you don't want a break. You want to be broken? No broken. All right. How about a five-minute break until 4.06? Come back in five minutes. I think five minutes is... All right. Happy three, happy three in one. As come back in five minutes. We'll continue with Luke and John. <laughs> All right. See you in five minutes.
may search na ako. Search. Check. Nagmaligo na ito. All right. While the rest are still joining us, I can take one more question, if you have a question. Does anyone have a question? I said. Yes. Josh. Uh, my question is, let's say if I'm a new Christian and then I want to learn about the Gospels, uh, which among the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, should I be reading? Like, is there any like a difference in terms of complexity, how these four different books was written? Yeah. That's just my question. I'm sorry. Question. The answer would depend on who is answering the question. For instance, from a teaching point of view, I would start with the Gospel of Matthew. Purely from a teaching standpoint, because Matthew collects the large chunks of Jesus' teaching and arranges them together. So when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount, you, you progress from one thing to another, 
and you're overwhelmed with this brand new information about this kingdom of God and the new way to live in Jesus' way. If you are looking for spiritual insight, something to help you make a decision for Jesus, I would probably start out with the Gospel of John, which is why the Gospel of John is the most translated book in human history. The Gospel of John is found in more languages than any other literature, especially John 3.16. It's translated even to remote tribal dialects, so on and so forth. Part of the reason the Gospel of John was chosen as the first gospel a person should read is because Jesus reveals a lot about himself directly in his own words. I am, I am, I am. And it's because of that, reading the gospels, the gospel of John, gives you perspective because it starts with in the beginning. In many ways, it starts off with Genesis equivalent and it ends towards the end times. The Gospel of Luke is not something that I would recommend a new believer to read, but I know many people that read the Gospel of Luke first and then got saved. So all four Gospels sufficiently convey the story of Jesus. But if you were to teach the Gospels to a group of unbelievers, unchurched people, with the intent of leading them to the Lord, I would probably start with the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of John. It's, it's up to you. If you are someone who would like to engage discussion, Gospel of John. If you are someone that would like to share insights and make people go home with one solid thought, Gospel of Matthew. But it's ultimately up to you and the Holy Spirit. I would be hard-pressed to choose between one and the other. When I first began to read the Gospels, Mark was my favorite because it was short. I could satisfy my mom and please my dad by saying I finished reading, so I picked Mark. When I became a Sunday school teacher, I liked the idea of Matthew. When I started teaching in the Bible school and looked into biblical theology, I became interested in studying the Gospel of John. But I've always been fascinated with the Gospel of Luke because Luke should not be read alone. It's a two-volume work. Part one, Gospel of Luke, and part two, Book of Acts. That's why some commentaries, for those of you that go to Bible schools or are enrolled in a Bible school right now, Luke Acts is seen as one document. Starts with Jesus and continues with the early church. Good question, Pastor Josh. Those are things that, um, especially people who are ministering to the young youth and young adults should be concerned about because we cannot start off from our comfort point of view. We should start off from what they are more excited to learn. Excellent question. But it's up to you. I do not like telling people what gospel to start with. Uh, but from a pedagogical standpoint, the gospel of Matthew, 
and from a spiritual insight standpoint, Gospel of John. Mark, probably not, because you will have more questions than you will have answers. Mark's in one big rush. Yeah. It's like riding a Jeep with three tires on a bumpy road with no driver and no brakes. Thank you, Pastor Sam. Let's go. You're welcome. Let's go to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is important, especially for us, Pentecostals and Charismatics, because he understands the move of the Holy Spirit. And you can see that flavor all throughout. So the Gospel of Luke should be seen as part one of a two-volume work. Both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are dedicated or addressed to the same person, Theophilus. Who is this Theophilus? Theophilus is a lover, a friend of God. Philea, friendly love. Theos, God. Theophilus can be a real person because that was a popular name. It could also be symbolic of everyone disciple of Jesus, therefore a friend of God. If you remember, the Apostle Paul talks about how we were once enemies of God because we were living in sin. And now because we have been justified and we live a righteous life, we are now sons and daughters and friends of God. Since Luke was very closely associated with the Apostle Peter, Paul, it does not make much, it's not, it's not a surprise that he uses such language. But we don't really know if this was a real person or was a symbolic gesture to all friends of God. This gospel is the story of Jesus. Gospel of Luke, story of Jesus. Book of Acts, story of the early church. And how they took Jesus' story and continued in the ministry that he commanded them with the great commission statement. So, when it comes to the earthly life of Jesus, Luke is the most comprehensive. He goes to great lengths to research and explain to us about Jesus' life. And if we want to know the history of the early church, Acts chapter 1 does the same thing. The first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke tell us a lot about Jesus' childhood and his pre-ministry life. And the first chapter of the Gospel of the book of Acts tells us about the early church. So you can see Luke approaches everything from a very systematic standpoint because he's a doctor, educated, and knows how to conduct research. So Luke. Luke's story of Jesus starts with uh, background information. It doesn't start with Jesus. It doesn't start with the John the Baptist. It doesn't start with the preaching and teaching of John. It starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth, relatives of Mary. Directly have no connection to Jesus. But it is important to Luke that he establish the background, so he starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth, 
And he also tells us a lot more about Joseph and Mary leading up to the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke ends with Jesus' ascension, where he rises up to be seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. And now, if you look at Acts chapter 1, it starts with the ascension. So the Gospel of Luke starts with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the background information. It ends with the ascension. And Acts 1 starts with the ascension, right? And starts with the story of the Holy Spirit and how he's going to come. And then the story of the early church. If you're looking at the New Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Of these, 13 are written by Paul that we know of. Five are written by John. The Gospel, Revelation, and three letters, even though one letter is really, 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 really small. But if you count words in terms of length, even though Luke only wrote two books, in terms of length, the content of Luke Acts makes up almost 30% of the entire New Testament. Luke, the Gospel, is a long book, and the book of Acts is a long book. So, in terms of contribution, with regard to volume, Luke is the largest contributor to the New Testament. Even though Paul wrote 13 letters and John wrote five books. 30% of the content of the New Testament, almost 30. I think exact numbers are somewhere between 27.6 and 28%. But let's call it 30. Nearly 30% of the New Testament's content comes from uh, Dr. Luke. How do we know Luke wrote this? Church history. From the very beginning, this gospel has been associated and attributed to Luke the physician. External evidences. Remember John Mark, the gospel of Mark, Papias, Irenaeus, and Clement. Here we have Irenaeus, Clement, who talk about um, Luke's authorship, Lucan authorship. Of the gospel. We can also throw in other names, Origen and Tertullian, church fathers that talk about Luke and authorship of the gospel. So, from a church history standpoint, the fact that Luke wrote the gospel is settled. No one ever disputed that, no one even argued about it. Everyone accepted it. That means it was common knowledge that Luke wrote the gospel. Um, who is Luke? What do we know about him? He's a fellow worker. He's a companion of Paul. How do we know this? Philemon, verse 24. Paul says, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. So he's seen as a companion and a fellow servant of the Lord together with the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. Paul refers to Luke as our dear friend, Luke, 
the doctor. Now, when we say doctor, was he a doctor like in our terms, like a surgeon who opens up people and removes body parts kind of thing? Maybe not. Physicians in those days used herbal remedies and uh, folk medicine. They did not use synthetic drugs, even though some of them mixed different kinds of herbal remedies, concocting their own uh, uh, cocktail of medicine. So when we think of Luke, yes, he's a doctor, but not someone who wore a white coat and carried a staff and charged people a lot of money. But he was a doctor. How do we know this? Paul talks about him. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, only Luke is with me. This gives us a great idea as to how dependent the apostle Paul was on Luke. Here's a man who could have made money being a physician and popular in the early church. He could have used his reputation and his testimony to become the doctor of the church. But here's a man that is content serving another servant of the Lord, following the Apostle Paul like a little puppy, serving that great man. Was, Jew, was Luke a Jewish person or a Gentile person? We're not entirely sure. Many people have issues with this because everything depends on how we look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. If he was a Gentile, we have to say that Luke is the only non-Jewish author in the, in the New Testament because Mark is Jewish, Matthew is Jewish, John is Jewish, Peter is Jewish, James is Jewish, the writer of Hebrew, definitely Jewish because he has such an excellent understanding of the Old Testament. Paul is Jewish. The only other person that, we, that is not, if Luke is a Gentile, I tend to think he's a Gentile. At least that's my opinion, not the Holy Spirit. He's the only non-Jewish writer in the, Old, in the New Testament. Many people argue that he may have been a Hellenistic Jew. What do we mean by a Hellenistic Jew? Remember when persecution started, Jewish people ran away from Jerusalem. And they scattered off, they call it the diaspora. They scattered off to different parts of the world. Some went to Antioch, some went to Ephesus. Some went to Rome, those with political connections, and some escaped to Egypt and Alexandria. And in Alexandria, they thrived, the Jewish people. They went into business and they became very wealthy. And just like we have Chinatown Binondo in Metro Manila, in Alexandria, there was a huge Jewish quarter. And this is where wealthy, educated Jews lived. And it is because of these Jews that we have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament because these diaspora Jews and the second and third generations that grew up, they grew up not speaking Hebrew because there were no Talmudic schools over there. They grew up speaking Greek and as such, they could not understand the Hebrew Old Testament. 
for their benefit, the community commissioned 70 scholars to translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. That Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament is called the Septuagint, always referred as LXX, number 70, because 70 scholars translated the 39 books of the Old Testament. Some people believe that Luke may have been a Hellenistic Jew, meaning someone who is Jewish by race, by culture and tradition, but Hellenistic in the sense grew up in a Greek culture, meaning not speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't know about that. I, I think that's a long stretch that I would, I'm more inclined to think of Luke as a Gentile, educated Gentile, than as an educated Hellenistic Jew. But it is quite possible. I might be wrong. Yeah. Um, for reference, you may also ask Pastor Alex. Um, I'm also interested to hear what he thinks. At least my position is he was a Gentile, a Greek-speaking Gentile, who understood Jewish customs and traditions because his best friend and discipler happens to be one of the greatest orators and knowledgeable people, the Apostle Paul. Luke, according to tradition, was born in Antioch of Syria, modern-day Syria. He was a doctor by profession. He was a servant and a disciple of the Apostle Paul and followed Apostle Paul everywhere until his last day. Church history tells us, now this is where I'm not very sure, it's just tradition. Church history tells us Luke never married, never fathered any children, dedicated his life to ministry, and lived to a ripe old age of around 85, 86, some people say 84, I'm not very sure, and then died. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Who was Luke writing to? The gospel and the book of Acts are addressed to someone called Theophilus, a lover of God or a friend of God. I think this is not a real person. But once again, I could be wrong. The reason I think it's not a real person is because it's a common way to mention anyone who was a lover of God, who loved the Lord. He also says, most excellent Theophilus. For this reason, some people believe that this is an actual person, a person with prestige and a person with, uh, you know, breeding and pedigree because, you know, lofty person, high ranking in society. Once again, I really don't know. When was the Gospel of Luke written. If we understand Luke was written as a two-volume account, and the book of Acts ends with Paul going to Rome and preaching there, 
after that we know we have no more um, uh, information in the book of Acts. And if the book of Acts was written around the time, then maybe we can safely say that the gospel may have been written just before their Neronian persecution began in the empire. That was around, let's say, 68 AD. I'm willing to allow someone to twist my arm and say maybe 67 AD. But I cannot, I cannot conceive of this gospel being written as early as 65 or later than 70. Um, long discussion, uh, no point in going there. But I think the gospel was written sometime between 67 to 68 AD. If we take into consideration Luke's association with Paul, Paul's imprisonment in Rome, and later execution, and the persecution of the Christians that began under Emperor Nero, um, so on and so forth. So, range. If you are not comfortable saying it was written around this time, the range of possibility would be somewhere between 65 and 68. Part of the reason I disagree with 65 is because Luke was busy traveling with Paul, but it could be quite possible that he wrote it. Where was it written? It was written from Antioch of Syria. What was the purpose? We know this. Of all the Gospels with Luke, we know why he wrote it. He says in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke himself tells us why he wrote this, this, uh, this Gospel. He says, a most excellent Theophilus, I decided to write an orderly account for you so that you may know with certainty of the things you have been taught. Thank God. If not for the Gospel of Luke, we would not know many things. Our Christmas nativity plays would be very incomplete. They'll be very boring. What's Luke's take on Jesus? Luke has a very unique understanding of Jesus. For him, Jesus is a Messiah, not just for the Jewish people, but for everybody. Jesus is the Messiah of God for everyone. Yes, Jesus is sent to the Jews and to fulfill the Messianic hope of Jewish people. But Jesus, as he says in chapter 2, verse 32, Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. And in chapter 3, he talks about so that all humankind may witness God's salvation. So for Luke, Jesus may be a Jew, may have been sent to the Jewish people, may be the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Jewish people, but he's a light to the Gentiles and given for the salvation of all humankind, so that all humankind may witness God's salvation. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus 
ministers to a lot of non-Jews. For instance, Jesus heals 10 lepers. He also heals a Samaritan. And Jesus' message of forgiveness is addressed not just to the Jewish people, but to all nations. For example, chapter 24, verse 27. In the Gospel of Luke, people who are marginalized, people that are not important to everyone, they are important to Jesus. Who are the marginalized in the Gospel of Luke? Poor people, people who have no financial stability. And then lepers, people who had no mobility, meaning in the Old Testament, when you are a leper, you are just as good as worthless. You are not allowed to live along with other people. You have to carry a bell. During the time of Jesus, when a leper passed through human inhabitations, they had to ring that bell and say, I am unclean, I am unclean, so people would clear out so that no one would touch them because if they touch a leper, they would become unclean. They have to go live outside too. So when lepers move through a city, they have to ring that bell. Imagine this, your body is disfigured. You have lost your health. You have lost your family, your wife or your husband or your children or your siblings or your parents. They don't want anything to do with you. You lost your business. You live like a beggar based on people who leave food out far from human inhabitation for lepers to come and get. And if they forgot, you starve to death. And whenever you had to move from one place to another place, you had to suffer the, 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 the humiliation of ringing the bell covered completely in clothes, bleeding everywhere, ringing the bell saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. But you know what Jesus will do in the Gospel of Luke? Jesus touches lepers. That's why I love Luke. The ones that nobody wants to even look at, Jesus gives them a hug. He lays his hands. If you are willing, can you make me clean? Jesus says, I'm willing, and then he touches the leper. Can you imagine what a big deal it is for a leper that somebody like Jesus would touch them? And Luke preserves that. It is not important to the other gospel writers that Jesus touched the leper, but for Luke, it's a big deal. The guy that nobody wants to touch and the guy that nobody wants to talk to, Jesus speaks kindly, Jesus touches. So marginalized people are elevated in the gospel of Luke. Their stories are important. This is why I think Luke was a Gentile. Because Gentiles were marginalized by the Jews. And the reason Luke becomes a champion of the poor and the lepers and the tax collectors and the sinners and women is because Luke himself understands what it means to be on the outside. Remember in the provinces, if you own a TV, your entire neighborhood is outside your house to watch telenovelas or NBA games. So you open your window and you open your door and they all stand outside and watch TV. I don't think it happens anymore because now people can watch on tablets and phones. But when I first came to the Philippines, when I went to Mindoro, I thought somebody died. Turns out they're all watching TV. Yeah. 
They all stand outside and they're shouting and rejoicing and clapping and then they thank everybody. Some people are so kind, they even prepare food for the people that come to watch television. Filipinos are amazing. You guys are like the most hospitable people in the whole universe. Well, at least the planet. I don't know about Mars and Jupiter. Makadir Pinoy is there, I don't know. But yeah, you're the most hospitable people. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has compassion on the marginalized, the poor, the disenfranchised, the excommunicated, the outcast, and the prejudiced, the people who suffer prejudice. Tax collectors were the worst people in Jewish society and sinners. So Luke has a heart that reaches out to the poor, to the lepers, and to tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you are for the sisters in this group, you will love Luke because women are very important for Luke. It's for this reason I think it was a Gentile author. Because Jewish people naturally had a condescending attitude towards women because that's the culture they grew up in. It's a very patriarchal culture. Men are more important and women are somewhere in the back taking care of the cooking, cleaning. Because he's educated and he's sophisticated. He grew up in a metropolitan society. He sees women as not under anyone, but as co equals in the kingdom that Jesus is building. How do we know this? Only in the Gospel of Luke, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is called Mary. You are blessed among women. Small little detail, but tells you a lot about uh, who Luke was. Only in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus allows a woman to wash his feet, chapter 7. In chapter 8, we are told that women generously supported Jesus' ministry. They gave money and food and emotional support to Jesus and his disciples, which is why Jesus went to Bethany a lot and stayed in the house of Martha and Mary, because Martha and Mary, I don't know what their job was, maybe call center, I don't know. Martha and Mary were excellent supporters of Jesus. Maybe they did not give any money, but man, they cooked up a storm. At least Martha did, and Jesus stayed there. So Luke chapter 8 tells us that women supported Jesus. When I began in ministry, my first supporters in ministry, besides my dad, were women. That's why I have huge respect for women in ministry. Only in Luke, women are elevated. And Luke identifies and emphasizes one important thing. Women were present at the crucifixion of Jesus. Everybody else ran away. But the women stayed there, weeping, watching Jesus being crucified. It's very important for Luke. All the guys took off, but all the ladies stayed behind. 
their love for Jesus was greater than their fear of the Romans. Isn't it beautiful? God bless Luke. For Luke, Jesus was a man of prayer, which makes a lot of sense because the Apostle Paul prayed a lot. He was a man of prayer. So Luke valued prayer. I'm sure the Apostle Paul said, Luke, come over here, son. Let's pray. And maybe they prayed like 10 times a day. And Luke was like, Lord, I need to go look for a different master. In Luke, nine prayers of Jesus are recorded. He preserves the prayers of Jesus. Out of these nine prayers in the Gospel of Luke, seven are only found in the Gospel of Luke. So prayer is important to Luke. And the fact that Jesus is a prayer warrior. He prays to the Father. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. While the other Gospels focus on Jesus' relationship with his Heavenly Father, Luke includes his relationship with the Heavenly Father, but also wants us to understand that Luke, Jesus had a unique relationship with the Holy Spirit. How do we know this? From the very start, from chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is involved in Jesus' life. From conception to his baptism and to his temptation in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit is involved in Jesus' life. So, Jesus has a great relationship with his Father. He also has a great relationship with the Spirit. Which is why, in the end, Jesus commands his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus celebrates often. While he's not a party boy, Jesus celebrates often. So many people call Luke the, the evangelist of joy. They call the Gospel of Luke the gospel of joy. Why do they call it the gospel of joy? Remember when Mary and, Zech and uh, Elizabeth get together, there's rejoicing. Because Elizabeth says, the baby in my womb kicked when he heard your voice. It's amazing. So, there's celebration between Elizabeth and Mary. There's great celebration in the heavenlies when the angels celebrate at the birth of Jesus. Glory in the highest. The disciples are happy whenever their ministry is fruitful. In chapter 10, Jesus prays with great joy. And people are happy when Jesus teaches. They like Jesus' teaching. In chapter 15, Jesus says, Whenever a sinner repents and is restored to the Father, there is great rejoicing in heaven. There is celebration when Jesus enters Jerusalem. People go crazy. 
the disciples are happy when Jesus appears to them after the resurrection. Yeah. And they are happy when he ascends to heaven while they're on their way to Jerusalem. Yeah. So Luke is a gospel of joy. Another important thing we see is Luke pays a lot of attention to Mary, the mother of Jesus, which is why many Catholic brethren and sisters, they love the gospel of Luke for the attention he gives to Mary. He calls Mary blessed, but he never calls Mary God. For Luke, Mary is just another person. She's a great person. She's a wonderful teenager to whom God entrusted his only son, but nonetheless, she is human. Luke also talks about how expensive discipleship could be, not in terms of money, in terms of cost to life. Those of you that read the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer know what I'm talking about, or Gerhard Lofink, or Thomas Grew. They isolate this idea better. The cost of following Jesus, chapter 9 and chapter 14. What Luke wants us to know is, while your ultimate reward is beyond your imagination, following Jesus in this world, in this life, it's going to cost you a lot sometimes even your life. But this is the only way to live. The cost of discipleship is great. Of all the Gospels, Luke talks about money more than anyone else. Is it because Luke was interested in money, he was greedy? No, it's because he is educated. Maybe he wanted practical information based on the teachings of Jesus to be passed on to the next church. So whether it is John the Baptist speaking or Jesus speaking, Luke has a lot to say about money. Sometimes the teaching is direct. Sometimes it is parabolic. What do we learn about money from the Gospel of Luke? Accumulation of wealth is not a life's primary goal. If you become wealthy while doing what God wants you to do, praise God. But you should not pursue becoming wealthy as your life's goal. That's not your primary goal in life. What does that mean? Money is the means to an end. It's not the end in itself. It can make you happy, but it is not synonymous with happiness because poor people can be happy too. Right? And money does not guarantee you eternal life. Discipleship does. How do we know this? Luke chapter 12 Verse 15, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Luke contrasts a lot, and we can study that in detail someplace else, but 
What else do we know about the Gospel of Luke? That we are not supposed to be like the Pharisees. Luke says, chapter 16, verses 14 and, um, yeah, and onwards. He says, the Pharisees were lovers of money, and they heard all the teachings of Jesus about money, and they ridiculed Jesus. And they said to him, you know, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your heart. So Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Because they made themselves out to look like great people when in reality their lives were a mess. What do we know about the Gospel of John? E. We're all there at 450. Let me stop here. Let me give you some homework. Your homework is this identify the I am sayings of John. Open your Bible. Don't not Google. Open your Bible and look in Gospel of John and browse through. Identify the I am sayings of Jesus. So that next week I'll focus more on the biblical theology behind them rather than wasting uh, time on talking about dates and stuff. So let's stop here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I also would like for you to know that there are different kinds of hypotheses. What do we mean? Um, the reliability of the Gospels. Where did they come from? What were the sources behind them? So you have the two document hypotheses and the four document hypotheses. It's not important to discipleship, preaching and teaching, but if you ever have any questions, I would recommend that you read up on that information. So let's stop here for today and ask if you have any questions. Any questions? No questions. All right, let me summarize the three Gospels quickly. Mark, Jesus moves fast. He moves from one place to another place because there is an urgency in fulfilling God's solid plan for his life. So Mark moves Jesus from place to place, event to event, person to person, miracle to miracle, teaching to teaching, all the way until he gets to Jerusalem and in the final week of his life. When he gets to the final week of Jesus' life, Mark slows down because this is the most crucial period in Jesus' life. For Matthew, it is very important that his Jewish audience, now Christian, understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. So, he quotes the Old Testament prophets to prove to his Jewish audience that Jesus is beyond reasonable doubt. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. 
for Matthew, it was also important to make his gospel, his story, reader-friendly. Because he was writing to the Jews, he had to make it reader-friendly. And as such, there is a Jewish flavor to the book. Important things happen on mountains. Important characters show up. And it's important to Matthew that the new teaching of Jesus be seen as the new law in place. That is why he collects all the various teachings of Jesus and combines them together and arranges them in a systematic way. In Matthew, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you and jesus talks about the new thing luke on the other hand is writing to gentiles people who are on the outside looking in and because of that luke wants his gentile audience to know salvation in jesus is not just copyrighted for jewish people jesus is not just for the jews jesus is not just People who are in Israel, Jesus is savior of all mankind and humankind. Someone just asked me, how did these stories get preserved? Oral tradition. Initially, no one thought of writing these stories down because there were plenty of eyewitnesses. Because there were so many eyewitnesses, no one felt the need to write down everything. They sat together, and whenever they had a, a, a meal or a, had a cup of coffee, I don't think they drank coffee, maybe a glass of wine, when they were sitting together discussing Jesus, they would say, remember the time you were sitting to the right side of Jesus? I was there underneath the tree. Nathaniel was in front of me, and he was doing this with his head. And Jesus said, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah. But do you remember we just came off the boat? My feet were still wet, and I was walking in the sand, and I was trying to wipe the sand off my soles, off my feet. And Jesus said, so it was not important for them to write. And suddenly, things got complicated. The Jewish authorities began to persecute the early church. Paul was one of those as Saul of Tarsus. And as the church began to, the church began to experience persecution, and as they began to lose eyewitnesses, the best way to kill something is to go for the one that speaks with the most authority. So they're identifying leaders, Peter, John, so on and so forth. And they were killing them one by one. That's when the eyewitnesses realized, you know what? If we die, no one would be able to tell the story of Jesus. That's when the oral traditions, all the stories, let's say, for example, Jesus said something, but Matthew was in the toilet. How did he know? That means they asked one another, what did I miss? Did Jesus say anything? Like when you excuse yourself, from your class while your professor is lecturing and you go to the bathroom and you come back, you ask your classmates, oh, uh, did the prof give us any homework? Are we supposed to read anything for next week's pop quiz? Is there going to be a quiz next week? What did I miss? What did I miss? Or when you go out 
uh, to the bathroom in the midst of NBA finals. What happened? What happened? What happened? Why is he on the bench? Why is he? Uh, why is there a technical foul? Same thing. When the disciples were out running errands, while all of them followed Jesus, it's easy to imagine some of them occasionally went out to buy food or were sent on errands by the master. And while they were gone, when they came back, they consulted one another. And all the stories of Jesus, because they are Jewish culture, except for Luke, they preserve these stories. So they were not initially in written form, but eventually they were put in written form. The goal of writing down the stories of Jesus was simply to preserve the story of Jesus for future generations in the event persecution takes the lives of all the eyewitnesses. And we're grateful that these men put down these stories because otherwise we would not have detailed information about Jesus' life. One last question. It's 458. No? No questions? All right. If you have no questions, Leah, are you here? Yes, Uncle Sam. All right. What do we do? I'm in your hands. We can have a breakout. Uh, five minutes. Wait. Are we ending at five or six today? Six, six, Uncle Sam. Oh, we're so ending at six. First. Yeah. So it's three to six now. Yes, Uncle Sam. If oh, thank God! I thought it's only three to five. Ah, thank God! I thought <laughs> I thought we're ending at five. That's why I was rushing. Now I feel bad. All right, take a ten-minute break. Come back, and I will go back and cover things that I skipped. It's uh, 5 p.m. Please come back by 5.10. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very sorry we could not start at 2 today. I had to shop for church. I'll see you in 10 minutes. Take a long break. Get some coffee. But please come back. All right. Thank please. you, Uncle Sam. All right. Thank you.
Ay, ay, ay. I have a question. Or, uh, probably, could you uh, share? Pastor, could you share uh, references where when we can get those uh, history or those things that you've discussed? Probably online where we can look for it for free? Because I know the books are too expensive. Um, good question. Mo most of these references 
are not available online because um, everything I'm sharing is from my time in Bible school. So I did research the old fashioned way, going to the library. But I can point you to a few good sources uh, um, online that are free, that are reliable. With scholarship, you have to be very careful, especially with the Bible, because a person's theological agenda can change the way they look at scripture. And if we are consulting the wrong site, we may end up making the wrong conclusions. But I will try to do that. I'll try to point you in the right direction. I think we can start. It's 513. Um, let me retrace my steps. Go back to... Um, the Gospel of Mark. There is this, um, in scholarship, there is this prevailing idea that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus did not want his identity revealed right away. Part of the reason they argue with this is because he forbids people from speaking about their miracles or telling people about what has happened to them. Even those demons that uh, shout out, Jesus, son of the most high God, what have you to do with us? He commands them to be quiet. So scholars have always been intrigued as to why Jesus forbids people from revealing his identity. There's a German scholar, Wilhelm Reda. He wrote a book, I forgot, very long time ago, um, in the 1800s or early 1900s, I think. It's called The Messianic Secret. In The Messianic Secret, he explores this concept a little bit. Why Jesus would not allow people to reveal his identity. And his conclusions are slightly different than mine, but the questions he asks are valid. My idea, my understanding of why Jesus does not allow others to reveal his true identity is because it's not his time yet. We draw the cue from John, uh, from the Gospel of John, where the wedding at Cana, when Mary comes to Jesus and says, You know, they ran out of wine. Uh, meaning do something, Jesus tells Mary, it's not my time yet. So she tells the servants, you do whatever this man tells you, and then leaves. Later on, Jesus asks them to fill the stone jars with water, which are then brought to the, the wine master, and he says this is the best wine ever. So part of the reason it looks like Jesus does not want anyone to know who he is, which seems counterproductive, because John says, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not comprehend it. My take on the whole messianic secret is, Jesus did not want to draw unnecessary attention to himself ahead of God's sovereign plan so that it would hinder the work of God. So whenever he heals someone, he tells them, make sure you don't tell anybody. Of course, they don't follow the man. 
they, they, when they are healed, they cannot stop talking about it. Even the demons. Surprisingly, there is another take on the messianic secret also. Everyone seems to know who Jesus is, including demons, except the disciples. Evil spirits in demon-possessed people immediately recognize who Jesus is. But Jesus notices that the disciples, even though they eat, drink, sleep, serve with Jesus, are a little bit clueless as to who Jesus is. In many ways, this is a wake-up call for us. Sometimes, critics, people who critic, uh, criticize the gospel, uh, atheists and agnostics and pessimists and liberals who argue about the Bible, seem to have more information about the Word of God than us. And I think that's wrong. Just as the disciples should have known more about Jesus than an evil spirit because the fellowship with Jesus, those of us that disciple, serve, lead, teach, preach in the, gospel, in, in the church, our knowledge of the Bible must be more extensive if we are to make any impact on those that disagree with the Bible or the gospel. Liberal scholars, there's this one man, you don't have to read his book. His name is Burton Mack. He wrote a book called The Myth of Innocence. And they argue that Christianity as a movement began with the Gospel of Mark. This idea is also supported by a German scholar. His name is Walter Schmidals. He wrote a German commentary, Das Evangelium nach Marcus. In it, it, he argues that the early church is an invention. Jesus never intended for the church. He just wanted ethical behavior from the people. He never wanted his disciples to start a movement and establish him at the center. These are the people that argue that Jesus is not the Son of God, just a great human being. So. The early church was okay with it, but somewhere around the 1800s, when the Enlightenment began to take root, scholars began to question the Gospel of Mark. Their, their question was, if Mark created a version of the story of Jesus to an extent that everybody else followed, and the early church is a creation, out of the Gospel of Mark. I think that's crazy, but, you know, liberal scholars will believe anything that gives them the authority to question Jesus. So we fall back on our contention that Peter preached and Mark wrote. There are some features in the Gospel of Mark that I ignored and avoided because I thought we were only until five, but now, thanks to Leah, I have 40 minutes more. So, I would like to draw your attention to the storm in the Sea of Galilee. Only Mark tells us that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. Chapter 4, verse 37. 
only Mark tells us that when Jesus saw the rich young ruler, he loved him. Chapter 10, verse 21. Only Mark tells us that Jesus took the little ones in the crook of his arm. He lifted them up in the bend where his elbow bends. Chapter 9, verse 36, and chapter 10, verse 16. These, all these tiny details give us a slightly better view of Jesus. One, Jesus sleeps. He's not an insomnia. And he can sleep, apparently, even in the middle of a storm. That means he can really sleep soundly, how I wish. Two, Jesus does not judge people. He waits for them to speak. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, even though, as the Son of God, he knows what this man is about to say, he waits for the man to speak and enters a dialogue with the man without judging him up front. He loved him. So he was very disappointed when the man left because he had great many possessions. Mark also has this unique habit of using Jesus' words in the original Aramaic. Only Jesus tells, or only Mark tells us, that Jesus, when he spoke to the little girl, he said, Talita, come. In chapter 5, verse 41. Meaning, little girl, arise. Only Mark preserves that. Only Mark preserves when Jesus healed the deaf man, he said, Ephata, which is to be opened. Chapter 7, verse 34. Another thing, grammatically, for those of you who are into hermeneutics, grammatically, Mark loves to use the historical present. You know what the historical present is? You know, she says to me, and I says to her, and he does this to me, and I does this to him. It doesn't make much sense, and it's not elegant, but there's a sense of movement. So Mark uses the historical present a lot. He also loves to use Caiuthus. I mentioned this before. And immediately. In chapter 3, 29 of the 35 verses, begin with the word and. He keeps moving from, thing, from one thing to another. Yeah. Ultimately, I think, I can't remember, I might be wrong, Mark uses the phrase and immediately approximately 40 to 42 times in the gospel. Of the three gospel writers, Mark alone opens his gospel with an uncompromising, direct perspective. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, chapter 1, verse 1. We're not told who this Jesus is, and we're not told where this Jesus comes from. All we know is, this is the gospel. Let's get back to the basics and to the thick of things. He does not talk about Jesus' nativity and then genealogy. Or he does not talk about Jesus' infancy. When Jesus is baptized, we do not know his age. There's only a short mention 
of Jesus' temptation. But of the three gospel, synoptic gospel writers, Mark alone tells us that Jesus was with the wild beasts. Part of the reason I think he does this is because persecution had begun in Rome and Christians were being thrown to the lions. So he wants the Christians who are facing the possibility of eaten by a lion to know that Jesus also was surrounded by wild animals during his temptation. While he talks about Jesus' baptism, in Mark, Jesus also uses baptism as a metaphor for death. Chapter, 30, chapter 10, verse 38 to 39. Matthew and Luke, when they're talking about the baptism of Jesus and the heavens opening, they use the word, the, he, the Greek word, anoigo. Anoigo is a gentle opening. Like when you go to watch a movie, and just before the movie starts, the curtain slowly goes up. It's a motorized curtain, and it doesn't just go right, it goes slowly up to create a sense of heightened excitement to watch the Marvel movie, Endgame, whatever it is. But Mark, he doesn't care about these things. Luke and Matthew use the word anoigo, the heavens opened up. Mark uses the word schizo, which means the heavens were ripped apart. This man is a violent man. And Mark also likes bookends. At baptism of Jesus, the heavens are torn apart. And at the death of Jesus, the temple curtain is also, once again, schizo, the same word, torn apart. God ripped up the heavens to speak to his son and God ripped apart the curtain because his heart ached at his son's death. Mark is good with things like that. And Mark also wants us to know that certain things are important for us to learn. Remember in Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn apart. There's a voice that says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is God's beloved son. And when Jesus dies, the centurion exclaims, truly this man was the son of God. So you have to take chapter 1 verse 11 and chapter 15 verse 39. When you look at it, Mark wants us to know that the heavens were ripped apart and God speaks. And the temple curtain, something made by man, is ripped apart and a man speaks. And the both testify to the same thing. God speaking out of heaven says Jesus is God's son. And man speaking out of earth says truly he was the son of God. For Mark that's important because the testimony of God and the testimony of man about Jesus, who is fully human and fully God, is equally the same. Jesus is the Son of God. If you are into numerology, you should not be, but Mark loves the number three. Remember, there are three boat scenes with the disciples. Chapter 4, chapter 6, and chapter 8. Three boat scenes. 
There are three passion predictions. Three times Jesus tells the disciples that he will be crucified. Chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. Three times Jesus commands the disciples, stay awake and watch in chapter 13. And these three admonitions to stay awake and watch are matched by three times the disciples fall asleep, chapter 14, in the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe this coincidence, maybe we're just discovering this by accident, or maybe he really likes the number three. I don't know. What else? In Mark, Peter denies Jesus how many times? Three times. How many questions that Pilate asked the people? Three questions. There are three time references at three hourly intervals for Jesus' crucifixion. The third hour, chapter 15, verse 25. The sixth hour, chapter 15, verse 33. And the ninth hour, chapter 15, verse 34. Three references. And if you notice, all divisible by three. Third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour. So I really don't know if Mark is a numerologist. I'm just thinking. Interestingly, Mark's the only person that refers to the gospel as the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What else can we learn from uh, the gospel of Mark? We can choose to see. Wait. There's something else I want you to know. Remember I was saying that he was writing the gospel primarily to a Roman audience. Um, for those of you that are looking for books, there's this book by a guy called Benjamin Bacon. Bacon as in yum yum, bacon. Benjamin Bacon. The name of the book is, Is Mark a Roman Gospel? It was published sometime around the early 1900s by Cambridge University Press. I had to read this in Bible school. Great book, a little bit boring, but in this book, Benjamin Bacon argues that Mark was predominantly targeting a Roman audience, meaning uh, a group of believers and people living in Rome. How do we do this? Mark seems to have a genuine interest in Latin terms, technical terms for certain things in the Latin. Chapter 5, verse 9. Legion. Nobody else uses that term. Chapter 15, verse 16, Praetorium. Chapter 15, verse 39, Centurion. Chapter 6, verse 27, Speculator. Chapter 15, verse 15, the whip, flagellare, the one that they used to uh, whip Jesus with. Um, he uses the prevailing term for Cohen, denarius, chapter 12, verse 15. Chapter 12, verse 42, he talks about the quadrants. So he has a penchant for using Latin terms, which gives us 
an indication that he was really writing to a predominantly Gentile audience in Rome. See, the Jewish people understood the night to have three watches. Three watches of but Mark speaks about four watches of the night, which is more common with Roman culture. Yeah. Jesus enters Jerusalem in the evening. He's betrayed in Gethsemane around midnight. He's brought to Pilate in the morning. Mark makes this very clear. How best do we read Mark? Mark should be read as a story. We should not separate the individual units from the overall narrative. So Mark wants us to understand the entire gospel as one story. In hermeneutics, we talk about narrative omniscience. It is the storyteller everything that the audience does not. So when we're telling the story of Mark, the best way to tell the story of Mark is to tell the whole story. So if you plan to teach the gospel of Mark, don't read one chapter at a time. Read all the chapters and then tell the story. So you can take an omniscient perspective as the narrator. Some people, the name of this author, I forgot, um, Gilbert Bilizikian, you don't need to remember this. He wrote a book called The Liberated Gospel. In this gospel, he argues that the gospel of Mark takes on the, the genre, the, the, the kind of a Greek tragedy. So he argues that Mark was trying to copy a Greek tragedy even though it was not written for theatrical purposes. Um, he draws parallels with Aristotle. For those of you that are into Greek literature, you probably remember Aristotle's Poetics. If you haven't, you can read Hamilton Fife, um, W. Hamilton Fife. His, treatments, his treatment on Aristotle's Poetics, um, text and translation, probably the best, published in 1927, William Heinemann. Um, in that, he argues that a tragedy has three elements. A complication, recognition, and the pneuma, the, the climax. So Belizekian argues we should best read the Gospel of Mark as a Greek tragedy. I'm sorry, I disagree with it. I think that's not the way to read Mark. There are parallels between Aristotle's treatments of a tragedy and the Gospel of Mark, but sort of forced. Some people, Martin Hengel, a great Johannine scholar, he wrote a book called Studies in the Gospel of Mark, published in 1985, originally written in German, but translated. In this book, he argues that the, the Gospel of Mark should be seen as a dramatic narrative of five acts, meaning five separate scenes with an introduction and a conclusion. So an introduction, chapters 1, verses 1 through, 15, 1 through 13, and a conclusion, 
chapter 15, verse 40, to chapter 16, verse 8. And then five scenes. Curtain opens, one scene, curtain closes, so on and so forth. First act, second act, third act, fourth act, and fifth act. I love Martin Hengel. I learned a lot from him about the Gospel of John, but I'm sorry, he might be a better scholar, but I don't see this. Once again, this is forcing our agenda on the Gospel. The narrative pattern of Mark, and this is where I stand. If you study the story of Mark, the narrative pattern, the literary pattern of the narrative supports a threefold division. Chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 16 to 8, 26. And chapter 8, verse 27 to 16, verse 8. So, that's the best way, I think, to read the Gospel of Mark. Even though other scholars have suggested that there is a geographical agenda. That Jesus is always moving towards Jerusalem. He's not excited about living in Galilee. He's always moving towards Jerusalem. So if you follow a geographical schema, first suggested by Willie Markson, who wrote a book called Mark the Evangelist, um, published in the late 1960s, I think. He argues that there is the ministry in Galilee, and then there is a small stay in Judea and Perea, and finally, the final week in Jerusalem. That is too much for understanding. What's the theology of Mark like? While the Gospel of Mark was not written from a theological to, to be taken as a theological as a story, but still it has theological themes. The preaching of the gospel is very important to Mark. Jesus comes preaching, John comes preaching. And what do they preach about? The kingdom of God. So for Mark, the gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God refers to the kingdom that God will establish. And this is good news. So preaching the good news for the gospel of Mark is preaching the kingdom of God. But here's a unique perspective. For the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God is both future expectation and present reality. This is where those of you that study New Testament theology, C.H. Uh, Dodd, already not yet. It's a future expectation. The kingdom is coming, but it is already here because the king is here. Present reality. Mark presents both sides. For those of you that want to study this in greater detail, privately message me and I'll send you the portions where you can spend more time reading this. Mark understands God's sovereign rule to be a redemptive rule that has come into history. It looks vulnerable, but 
it grows until the day of harvest. So in Mark, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he is the one that cuts the ribbon. He inaugurates the kingdom of God, which is in many ways inauguration of God's redemptive rule in human history. As such, you could say Mark has very strong Christology because Jesus, the anointed one, is God's beloved son and as such does God's sovereign work. Son of God is Mark's favorite title for Jesus. He is also mentioned as son of the most high God by the evil spirits. But yeah. discipleship is important for Mark. Calling people is important for Mark because at the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus calls Peter, James, and John. Chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. They are also Jesus' primary audience. As they're going up to Jerusalem, Peter, James, and John follow Jesus. Um, surprisingly, while discipleship is important for Mark, the disciples are not always presented in a positive light. And I've always struggled with this. How can you lift up discipleship as an important theme and speak so lowly of disciples. How do we know this? Chapter 4 and chapter 7. The disciples don't always understand Jesus' teaching. They don't understand Jesus' parables. So they go to him and ask him to explain. Everybody else gets it, but the disciples don't. They don't understand Jesus' teaching on divorce. They cannot understand why Jesus talks about his death. Chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And they fail to understand how he's able to calm the storm or how he's able to walk on water. So you could say that the disciples are a little bit clueless initially in the Gospel of Mark. Did Mark think less of the disciples? No. He could not have because he's writing down the sermon of a disciple. I don't think Peter will put down the others and himself. It just goes to show one simple truth that our perfect and just and righteous Heavenly Father can use us in spite of our imperfections, unrighteousness, and our disobedience. We don't have to be perfect to carry out God's will. Why? God is already perfect. So we should not pursue being perfect. We should pursue being obedient and submissive. Um, let's go to Matthew. 90% of Matthew is found in Mark. Let me put it the other way. 90% of Mark is repeated in Matthew. Matthew starts off with the genealogy, traces Jesus' lineage to Abraham to establish Jesus 
as a legitimate son of Abraham to counter the attack of the Pharisees who claimed that Jesus was not a son of Abraham. They were. Matthew is interested in the fulfillment of prophecy. How do we know this? There are 41 separate citations of Old Testament prophecies in the Gospel of Matthew. Ten times out of these 41 occasions, Matthew introduces that it might be fulfilled. And then he continues with the prophecy. Chapter 18, verses 10 to 22, is addressed directly to the church. So obviously, Matthew wrote the gospel with the discipleship manual in mind. At least, that's what I think. In Mark, the most common title for Jesus is Son of God. But because Matthew is writing to the Jews, you will notice in Matthew, the common title for Jesus is Son of David. Because he is a Messiah out of the house of David, fulfilling prophecy. So it's important for Matthew to show to the Jewish people that Jesus is a son of Abraham and is a son of David, just as the prophets prophesied. Matthew includes four Gentile women in his genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Why does he include these four women? They're all foreigners. Tamar was a Canaanite. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah. She married Judah's firstborn, Ur, and then he did something that was evil and God killed him. So, following Leverett custom, she marries Onan, who is very unhappy because he probably did not like her. And he did something that God was not pleased with, and God kills him, and Judah freaks out. He's like, hey, you already took two of my sons. If I marry Shelah, my youngest one, to you, Bakay will kill him also. Why don't you go stay in your father's house? My son is too young. When he's older, I can call you back, and then you can come marry my youngest. So Tamar goes to her father-in-law's house, and time passes, and she realizes Judah has no intention of making her marry his youngest son. In the meantime, Judah's wife dies. So this man goes around. He's trying to have some fun. And while he goes around, he comes across Tamar's territory, and Tamar sits outside. A woman sitting outside was a bad idea in those days. Only women sat, only prostitutes sat outside their homes. The rest of them stayed in their home. And when he's passing by with his friend, he sees there's a woman covered with a veil sitting outside, signifying she's a prostitute. They negotiate a price. They go in. They commit sin. He fornicates because his wife dies. She is adulterous because technically she's still married, waiting for a third husband. And later on, Judah finds out that she's pregnant, but he does not know how she got pregnant. And the story continues. She gives birth to two boys, twins. 
Perez and Zera. And one of them becomes an ancestor out of the line of David. The Israelites cross the Jordan. They go into Jericho to scope out the land. Rahab, another prostitute, helps two Israelites to hide from the investigators that come to look for them. And as such, because she believes in the God of Israel, even though she's a prostitute, living in Jericho, her life is spared, and she becomes an ancestor. So you have Tamar, a woman of questionable reputation with more than one man in her life, and Rahab, a woman of questionable reputation with more than one man in her life, both non-Jewish people in the genealogy. The third person is Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. She eventually marries Boaz, and Boaz has Obed, and Obed has Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. We don't know if Bathsheba was a Jew Jewish person or a Hittite. There could be a possibility of either, but she was married to a foreign. David falls in love with Bathsheba, wants to have her, so he has his, her husband killed. So you have four women, all foreigners, in part of Jesus' genealogy. Why does Matthew include these four women? He wants the Jewish audience that will read his gospel to know that Jesus is not just the savior of the Jews, he's savior of the world. And if they want to talk about ritual and racial purity, hey, Jewish people, look, there are four pagan women in this genealogy. And as such, Jesus is for the Gentiles too. Luke presents the story from Mary's standpoint. Matthew presents the story from Joseph's standpoint. But he talks about the child and his mother. He does not say the child and his father because he wants to show that Mary is Jesus' mother. Jo Joseph is Jesus' father by virtue of marriage to Mary, but not because he has fathered the child. So these are important features. Um, what else do we know about Matthew? Um, there is an argument. Remember Benjamin Bacon, the guy I mentioned before? He wrote another book called The Five Books of Matthew Against the Jews. In this book, he argues Matthew was designing his gospel to be some sort of a new Torah, the Pentateuchal approach. Just as there were five books of Moses, there are five books of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, the rest is not that important. I just wanted to mention that. What about the theology of Matthew? When we look at his theology, there are four things that come out. Matthew is very interested in the Messiah. And 
how the Messiah is the fulfillment of prophecy. We talked about this. So Matthew has huge messianic interest. Two, Matthew is both particular and universal. Particularism in the sense that he's speaking to the Jews. Universal in the sense that he presents Jesus as Messiah of the whole world. There are two other elements in Matthew. Ecclesiastical elements written for the church and eschatological elements about the end times. And Matthew pursues both elements, agendas, carefully. What are the titles that Matthew uses for Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. And as the Messiah, he is the new king of Israel. And he is the leader of the new people of God. So Matthew uses the word Messiah several times all throughout his gospel. And as Messiah, Jesus brings the promise of restoration, salvation, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. How do these, how do these get fulfilled? Matthew says, in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. For Matthew, Jesus is a new Moses. Just as Moses led the people out of bondage in Egypt into the promised land where the call to worship God, Jesus as the new Moses will lead people out of spiritual bondage, out of spiritual Egypt, if you will, into a new promised land. Eternal Jer Jerusalem. Excuse me. So, Jesus is a new Moses leading a new Israel into a new promised land as fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It is important for Matthew that Jesus is God's son. So in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is affirmed at baptism. This is my son. For Matthew, Jesus' destiny is to be the king of Israel. But he's a unique king. How does he rule? For Matthew, Jesus rules through his suffering. By choosing to suffer for us, Jesus reigns over us. Jesus is a teacher. He's a preacher and a revealer of the word of, of the will of God for Matthew. So in Matthew, Jesus' teaching and Jesus' preaching are highlighted. But here's another interesting fact. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees, the people, the Sadducees, all the non-disciples, they call Jesus Rabbi. The disciples themselves 
do not call him rabbi. They call him Kurie, Lord. But Jesus himself refers to himself as teacher. What's the most important aspect of this teaching? God's will. God's will as it is revealed in this new age that Jesus has inaugurated according to the word of God. How does Jesus inaugurate the kingdom of God? In three separate phases. He inaugurates the kingdom of God in his public ministry. He inaugurates the kingdom of God in his death. And ultimately, he inaugurates the kingdom of God in his resurrection. We'll get to the theology of Luke next week. If you have any questions, can you please send them to me? Or to Leah, and then they will get to me. Any questions? We have time for one or two questions. Ivan, no questions? All right. Okay, Leah, I'm in your hands. Thank you, Pastor Sam. Thank you, too. Thank you, also, students. Thank you, Pastor Sam. Can I just ask Pastor Ivan to close us in prayer? Pastor Ivan, are you there, Paul? Yes, Paul, yes, Paul. Yes, okay. So let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you, we praise you, we glorify your name. Thank you for this afternoon, oh God, for um, using Pastor Sam to, to share uh, the knowledge you have entrusted him with, Lord, about uh, the Gospels, about everything, Lord, about you, uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, for, for us to be better um, leaders, for us to be, to be better uh, people who will be sharing your word to to reach out for the lost to sh to reach out for those people who haven't known you yet, Lord. And um, we are excited, oh God, to to have um, many more classes um, about uh, all about you, Jesus, and to to know more about you as we um, read your word, Lord. We we ask of uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Oh God, as we um, have our own devotions, have our own time with you, Lord, um, through, through all the learnings that we have received uh, this afternoon, Lord, may, may our um, knowledge about uh, you, Jesus Christ, um, make, um, deepen our relationship with you and increase our faith and um, increase uh, our desire to know more about you and to share you and make disciples. Um, we honor you uh, this afternoon. Uh, we appreciate as well Pastor Sam. Bless him. Bless the work of his hands. Uh, use him uh, more and expand his territories. And 
uh, may you uh, continue to empower him, Lord, as uh, as you use him to to equip um, other leaders um, of uh, our community and our um, church. Uh, we thank you, uh, um, Jesus Christ. Um, we everything we we ask um, in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Yes. Thank you all so much po. Please uh, post individual learnings na lang po in our map page. Pastor Sam, thank you once again. Thank you po, Pastor Sam. National Office. Maraming maraming Pastor salamat. Pastor Sam, thank you. Thank you po, National Office. Thank you. Thank you po, Ate Leia. Thank you. Thank you, Ate Leia. Thank you po, sa sa ano, sa recording. <laughs> thank you. See you all tomorrow. Okay. Thank you. Thank you po. We're ending in five, four, three, two, one.